0: Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Title of my message today is Shushing Your Sadness. Shushing Your Sadness. Uh, a while back, my wife and I, we have three kids, and we, uh, we've we been together for a super long time. And one of the things that, if you ask my wife like, what she wants to do for fun, which every once in a while, I'm like, today's your day, what do you want to do? And she's like, oh, maybe we could clean and organize things. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of a weird... We have a different idea of like fun times, but that's cool. And so we, she was like, she got all the stuff. We were sorting through the garage. And as a part of it, we, we started going through all these old pictures that we found. And then of course I got distracted and then distracted all the children with all of these old pictures because they were of the two of us from like right around our college days, right around when we first got together and started dating. And my wife and I have been together for a really long time. We, uh, we started dating like 22 years ago. We, this summer will be have been married for two decades, 20 years, and so that's a long stretch of time, and uh, this was one of the photos that we, that I came across, and as I'm, I'm showing it to my kids, one of my kids was like, why do you have photos of random people, and I was like, these are not random people, this is your mother and I, and some of our friends, and they're like, what, that's you guys, And I'm like, yeah, that's us. Don't act so shocked. And they were. They couldn't hide it. They were enormously shocked. And like my kids, one of my kids was like looking at the photo and then looking at each of us and then looking at the photo. And then he just goes, what happened? (laughs) And you could tell he was like genuinely concerned. You know what I mean? Like, are you okay? (laughs) Do you need intervention? And I'm like, what happened? You all happened. Look how good looking and skinny we were. We were smiling. No one even told us to smile. It was just something that happened accidentally in college. We were living the dream. Everything was amazing. My, one of my other kids was like, are, what are you, where are you at? Are you at a party? And I'm like, yeah, we were at a party. We were hanging out at a party with other people. And uh, they're like, you went to parties? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we had a life once upon a time that wasn't just about you. This blew one of my kids' minds. He's like, was it fun? I'm like, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, it was okay. You don't, you don't want to lean into it too much because then they start being like, whoa, you're trying to get rid of me? Um, I'm like, no, but that is a little bit what summer camp is about. Um, we can sort of, sort of send you away for a few days. Well, my daughter was like, why aren't you sitting together? And I'm like, because we had crushes on other people. This was a long time ago, okay? She was really into that guy in the green shirt named Paco, okay? He was a dreamboat. He was into rock climbing and everything. And I kind of had a crush on that girl who is staring longingly at me right now. In this photo, so I was winning. <laughs> but obviously we were you know, we were meant to be. We got together, you know? And it's so weird to like watch, and maybe you've done this with your kids or somebody else's kids, where they sort of had this moment where they realize that you haven't always been their parent, that you had other things that you did or wanted to do, or you know, outside of them. I remember the first time I realized that my mom didn't always like being a mom. It blew my mind, right? Of like, what? You mean you you have other like dreams and interests and desires and wants and longings that have nothing to do with just taking care of me? What it was just so stunning and shocking because maybe you figured this out. To our kids, we are not people. We're just parents, right? And that sounds horrible when you're thinking about you know your kids not seeing you as a person. You don't see your parents as people either, right? You're like, what? You're a mom. What are you doing? You're my mom. You can't have you know like. A life and feelings and things, you know, we 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 sort of get this narrow focus. And the reason why I bring this up specifically today is, I think what happens a lot to us in life, and I think this happens specifically with moms, is that as we live life and as we sort of adapt these different roles and, and evolve as people, there becomes this rift sometimes between who we actually are and how we see ourselves. And how other people want to see us and experience us. And sometimes we don't know what to do with the discrepancy in the middle, right? There are all these expectations that, that so, that get put on us in life. And I think this is uh, especially true with moms. There are a lot of expectations and pressures with being a mom. And we pick these up from all sorts of places. We pick them up from our upbringing and sort of what we witnessed around us. We pick it up from, you know, the, the people that we spend time with, the movies that we watch, the, the accounts we follow on Instagram, the, the society we're surrounded with. And the pressure can be paralyzing sometimes the discrepancy between sort of who we are or how we feel or how we see ourselves or who we want to be and sort of the roles that we function in and the way that we feel like people want to see and experience us, sometimes that chasm in the middle causes a sense of deep sadness because we don't know how to remedy that. We don't know what to do with that. And sometimes it leads to us feeling trapped and not knowing where to go with it. And Maybe you're thinking like, okay, that, I'm sure that that is the case for some people. But I would say that like just statistically in our country, um, the, the, the real numbers show us that this is a bigger issue than maybe we would want to believe. According to uh, Mental Health America, these are just a handful of stats you could Google and, and get access to. One in eight women in the United States develop clinical depression in their lifetime. That is twice the rate of men. Um, that's a lot. Right. There's definitely more than eight women in here. And so that means that it affects a lot of people and people that you probably know. Depression hits hardest, uh, in women between the ages of 25 and 44. Um, what some sociologists call the prime mothering years, right? Which maybe don't share that one with your kids, right? It's like, when did you start getting sad? I mean, it was mostly just during the time I was raising you. And, uh, before that was great. After that was great. Um, it was this middle sort of section. That matches perfectly the pictures of you growing up hanging down the hallway. But don't, don't take that personally, right? Uh, and the largest demographic of depressed women are single moms and the unhappily married. And some of you ladies are like, what are, the, what are, are there other categories? And that's not fair. That's inappropriate. Okay. There are a lot of happily married women. It is possible. But I think like th- when I look at this, this is astounding. It is staggering. Right, and I think we look at this and it can feel abrasive, especially maybe if you're the one that is experiencing it. And I think part of the problem and why this is, is has become and is mounting, becoming an even bigger issue, is because of something called uh, effortless perfection. This is a phenomenon that has taken hold of our culture. It's a term that was coined by Duke University years ago, and it essentially refers to the pressure to appear like you are amazing at everything, without even trying. Anybody feel this pressure in your life from our culture? I think in a lot of ways, uh, in talking to a lot of moms, this is what it feels like to be a mom, to feel the pressure of effortless, Perfection, but it's something that we all feel to a certain extent. It's this idea that you should, you know, never seem like you ever have to really try hard or prepare for anything, but you are always miraculously competent and amazing at everything, right? It's this sense that you, you know, you should talk about all the things that you have to do, but nobody should ever actually see you do anything that is all that difficult. It should be a mystery. You should be able to be like engage and be witty on virtually any topic that pops up in culture. You should be very social and also highly professionally successful at the exact same time. And you should never, ever let people see you sad. You should never bring up any long lasting, heavy struggles that you can't seem to shake. And above all, this is the golden rule of effortless perfection. And and the rule I think of our culture is don't be a downer. Don't be the person that shows up and brings the whole room down, right? We just have no space for that in our society. And again, this is just describing a cultural phenomenon. You pile on top of that all of the cultural pressures of being a modern mom, and it gets even more confusing and more heavy. The pressure to raise perfect kids, right? The pressure to uh, stay sexy and stylish at all points. The the pressure to keep the house clean and to contribute financially. Because if not, we're going to be homeless because we live in California. It's expensive, right? The pressure to cook uh, healthy, delicious meals frequently. And, And even though those words don't go together, healthy and delicious. Someone's always mad to be active in your community. You gotta do all the things your kids want to be done and be involved and to keep your romantic partner happy. You pile all this on top of all the other stuff that exists and, and no wonder the depression statistics among moms are so high. No wonder so many women feel like they have to be and do more than they actually can and like they have to suppress their sadness when they inevitably can't. And that's problematic. And if that's something that resonates with you, uh, I have a really great story for you. It's a story from the Old Testament. And it's, I guess it's technically not really about being a mom. It's about really wanting to be a mom and not being able to. It's about how, how horrible the hurt of that can actually be in your heart. It's about how it feels on certain special holidays and everybody's getting together with their family and they're celebrating motherhood and you feel happy for them, but you also feel sad for you. And the weird confusion and complication of that and not knowing what to do with those feelings or where to put them or what to do with them. It's a story about that. And it's found in First in Samuel chapter 1. And I want to just read this to you and make some observations um, that I think apply, strangely, this ancient story applies to what we many of us experience now. First Samuel chapter 1 verse 2 says this, Elkanah, it's the guy's name, great name, somebody named their kid that, it's so manly. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. Uh, Penaniah had children, but Hannah did not. And each year they would travel to worship and sacrifice to the Lord at the temple. And on the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penaniah and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. Now, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect here because if we live in a different time and place. But you can you can pick up a little bit what's going on. Right? In our culture, there's definitely a pressure to have kids and to be a nurturer if you're a woman. And man, it was way heightened in this culture because in this society, um, a woman's worth was measured by her ability to have and raise kids. And this woman who lives in that society can't get pregnant. And that's a problem for her. And so it leaves her feeling worthless. It's crushing and everybody treats her different. Like even her husband, doesn't treat her the same as everybody else. And she feels like there's something wrong with her because the prevailing belief at the time was that if this happened to you, it wasn't circumstantial, it wasn't just like biological, it wasn't coincidental, it was probably spiritual. In, in all reality, maybe God was punishing you. To which if, if somebody told you that because you couldn't have kids, you would ask the question like, why? And most of the time they'd be like, I don't know, what'd you do? I mean, like, which is not real helpful, or hopeful. And so she just feels like she's broken. There's something wrong with her. And there's nothing she can do about it. It feels utterly hopeless. It says in verse six, just to dig the hopelessness a little bit deeper, Penaniah would taunt and make fun of Hannah because the Lord had kept her from having children. Of course, everyone's blaming it on the Lord. We don't know if that's true or not. That's just the assumption they made. Verse 7, year after year it was the same. When they went to the tabernacle, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. How horrible. So this wasn't just people from the outside, mocking, making fun of, stigmatizing her. There's people from the inside. People inside of her own family. Sister wives are the worst, am I right, ladies? I mean, it's just the competition that exists there. You guys know what I'm talking about. And notice, like this, is the other thing that catches my attention. Notice where, like, all of the the, same, the shame, and the judgment, and like, and the, and the hurt. Notice the location where this stuff happens: the tabernacle, at church. It's like the place that people are going to find connection and acceptance and grace and mercy and relief and wisdom is actually the one place where she's just like, time to go to the place where everyone. Piles shame on me because I am not good enough. And some of you are like, "Yeah, that's why I stopped going to church." And I I agree with you. There, like a lot of like churchy religious people are this way. A lot of church people are cruel. That's why we started our own because I didn't want to go to the other ones. Right? It's like so. You're like, "Thank you." So this woman can't eat. She can't sleep. She doesn't feel accepted anywhere. She can't stop crying. Um, but fortunately she has a loving husband and this is his response to her. You guys are gonna love this. Verse eight. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. (laughs) Isn't that better than having 10 sons? (laughs) Wow. Some of you are like, I don't feel clued into a lot of women's needs, but I wouldn't even say that. This guy does not get it. Like a very low emotional intelligence level. Can you imagine doing that? Like, girl, what's wrong? Come on. Why do you need a baby when you got all this? I'm your baby, baby. (laughs) So ridiculous. Like what wants, needs, dreams, and desires could you possibly have outside of just, you know, loving me? Isn't this the, our relationship the, the pinnacle of your existence? You're welcome. <laughs> Verse 9 it says, One time, once, after a sacrificial meal, Hannah got up and she went to pray. Eli, the priest, was sitting by the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed. And Eli watched her. Sounds a little creepy. Um, Seeing her lips moving, but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. So he confronts her. Must you come in here drunk? Throw your wine away, woman. Just immediately jumps to like an incorrect conclusion. This in his mind, he's like, why else? I can't possibly think of any other reasons a woman would be crying in church unless she's drunk. I'm going to call it out and address it right now. Again, this guy does not have a high EQ either. But notice this was I think is interesting to me. And I think this is why a lot of people, when they're hurting or going through really tough stuff, don't, don't want to share it with other people, especially maybe people that they, you know, view as religious. Is notice that like he starts with an aggressive accusation as opposed to a compassionate question. And it crushes her even more. Like he doesn't approach her with care. He doesn't like, you know, ask her what's wrong or dig into her story or try to understand her circumstances. He does the opposite. He just automatically assumes the worst. And I think for a lot of us, this is why we don't want to express our emotions, especially the darker deep end emotions, because we're just like, once I put it out there, what I'm gonna get back is a bunch of like judginess. People jump into conclusions who don't know the story and don't even care to know the story. They're just uncomfortable with my display. And I wonder like, what if we navigated things differently? Like, what if we became known as a place and a people that started with a compassionate question when somebody was acting maybe differently than we expected as opposed to an aggressive accusation. Because what happens to you when somebody comes at you with an aggressive accusation? You shut down, don't you? It makes it worse. You you hide it away further. It doesn't cause you to open up and actually seek and get help. So this is her response. In verse 15, she says, oh no, sir, I haven't been drinking but I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman. I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. Oh, in that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your request. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. And then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. Does it feel like a, like a too convenient of a wrap-up? It's kind of like, I don't know. about. I mean, like, I believe the Bible is true. That sentence feels a little suspicious. I mean, there's a few things that stand out to me here. One, I think it's funny, like funny in a sad way that there is no apology at all from Eli for accusing her of being a drunk. Are you drunk? No, well, get out of here. Like, there's no like, oh, I'm so sorry. I misjudged you. That was inappropriate. I shouldn't have done that, right? Oh, that must've felt horrible, right? He's just like, Okay, you're not drunk? Well, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. If you're gonna cry, can you do it somewhere else? Because it is just, it's super awkward. And I bet, you know, I bet there's a lot of us in here that grew up in families like that. That that was sort of the response. If you're gonna feel things like that, can you do it not around me? Can you take that away from here? Can you not do that in my presence? And if you ever did, it leaves an imprint on you. And that imprint is often really hard to shake. And, I, and especially the younger you are, the more you think like, oh, it's, it's about me. Like I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't, like, I shouldn't have these, these thoughts and feelings. I should never be down. And we sort of section off this part of us assuming that it's, it's our problem. But a lot of times there's a good chance that the reason that they do that to you has nothing to do with you. I think in reality, sometimes people don't want to see your sadness because they're afraid it'll surface their sadness. And they've worked really hard for a really long time to keep it suppressed. And so they're avoiding your pain to keep from having to acknowledge their pain. I can't tell you like the number of uh, funerals that I've been to that I've, I've, I've done where they have that little moment where they let people get up and talk and and somebody will get up and they'll say something like, okay, listen, guys, that's enough, all right? This is no time for sadness. We shouldn't be crying. That's not what they would want. And I always think like, of course you should be crying. This is a perfect time for sadness. Your best friend just died. You ought to be allowed to feel that that disconnection, the pain of losing someone you love. And a lot of times we don't allow ourselves to do this because in our culture, we've decided that, that, that being sad is always bad. But it's not. And it's not something that's meant to be suppressed. It's meant to be fully felt and shared and sorted through and learned from. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, you hear a lot about um, the, the early writers and the early church builders about this idea, about really creating a safe space for people to be who they are and to feel what they're feeling and to sit with them in it and to walk them through it, to not encourage them to suppress it. Maybe you've heard this. This is from the book of Romans, chapter 12. The apostle Paul wrote this. He wrote, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. And maybe you've heard that before. And I think we like half of this verse, right? We're like, I love being happy with people who are happy. That's awesome. Can we just delete the second part? Because that makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. We like to sometimes pretend that this says, be happy with those who are happy and with those who weep. Tell them to go somewhere else because they're being embarrassing and they're ruining everybody else's good time. It doesn't say that. So you are like, thank God, because I was led to believe it was. And I also have to tell you that oftentimes, someone who's dismissive of you, is also highly dismissive of themselves. And that's sad. Part of the reason why they're, like, they're, they're shutting down and saying no and trying to suppress and hide away your feelings is because when they're feeling things that they don't wanna feel, they do that to themselves. And the way that they're making you feel in this moment, they probably, likely make themselves feel a lot more often. And that's a tough place for someone to live in. And part of me thinks that there is an element of that inside this story. Eli tells her to go home and eat, and she does, and she feels better, and that's interesting and surprising to me. I'm happy for her because I've been trying to eat my feelings for years, and I usually just end up fatter and still sad, so that's cool that she just was like, oh, that's great. I feel better, and I'm pretty sure that this was Eli's strategy too, just eating his feelings because he had a lot of family drama that you can read about in the rest of that book and he also had unlimited access to delicious temple barbecue because that's how the sacrificial system worked, right? You bring like the, uh, the best unblemished, you know, uh, lamb or goat or whatever that you had to sacrifice. And they were all like tenderized, you know what I mean? Because you didn't want it to like, you were like taking extra good care of it. Also, do you notice this guy like sat by the front of the temple just watching the meat come in? You know what I mean? That was his jam. And part of what they did is some of it got burned up, and some of it got distributed back to the family. That's why, like the uh, Elkanah is giving portions to his family to eat as a part of the celebration feast, and a, a good section of it goes back to the priests. The best parts go to the priests. They get all the choice barbecue, and I think we ought to do that here at our church because I love barbecue, you guys. But I think he, he, he like went overboard with this thing. I think that, that he was using food to avoid his feelings, partially because there's this other verse, and this is just a little Bible study nugget for you. First Samuel chapter four, verse 18. This is a few chapters later. It says this. When the man gave Eli the bad news, he fell backward off his chair and broke his neck and died because he was old and fat. <laughs> what? That's in the Bible, you guys. How did he die? He was old and fat. We all knew it. He was old and fat. He fell over, snapped his neck, right, instantly. Doesn't this piece of information, like, change the whole story for you? It changes the visual completely, right? She's in there sobbing. He's got, like, that little cushy chair. I don't know if you can see from this, but he has a plate of nachos on his lap. And he's just watching, you know, just eating. You know, he's he's a little bit shy, but he's got to be around people. So he's just medicating with food. And he's like, I get that you're sad, but... You know, you, you, you can't cry here. You should go home. Maybe eat some ribs, you know, have a, you know, rack of lamb, sop up that grease with some unleavened bread. That's what I do. And, whew, And you know, I, I just imagine people be like, listen, fatty. lie. I get that you've been telling people you're a big bone for years. But here's the reality. As a friend, and I'm not trying to judge you. You need to start feeling your feelings, okay? Because we all see how wobbly the legs on that chair are. And one day it's going to snap. It's going to be bad news for you. And that's exactly what happened. Foreshadowing. Spoiler alert. Because he was old and fat. And here's why I tell you all that. Because whatever you do to avoid dealing with the sadness inside of you will eventually enslave you. And I I think that this thing that he tried to do to avoid this, the sadness inside of him, I think it was the thing that led to his disconnection from God, from other people, from himself, and ultimately led to his death. And maybe you're looking at this and you're like, man, that, there are, yeah, things that I did at first to escape or avoid this, but now I can't stop doing it because I need it to not have to feel or sit in the hurt And I don't know what else to do. This is all I know. Because what I'm going through is overwhelming, and this is my issue. So it's like I have, to, I have to be the one to deal with it on my own. I don't want to bother other people, and I don't want them to feel bothered by me. And I get that because that may be true about some people and some experiences you've had. But as Christ followers, this is not the way that we're called to live. Listen to this. This is another letter. That was written to the early church to, uh, about like how, how do we deal with people and the, the vast experiences that they have? Like, how do we become people that model who Jesus is to others? Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 says this share each other's burdens, and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Some of you are like, the Bible is way more blunt than I thought. You're old, you're fat, you're not important. So you're like, can I embroider this on a pillow and just like put it, it's just so encouraging. I love this. That's my life verse right there. But, you know, this is absolutely essential for us to understand the way of Jesus. In other words, what, what he's saying here is don't tell people who are hurting to go home, to go away, to just get over it, to suck it up, to shut up, to, to push it down, to deal with it on their own, to maybe just ignore it, maybe just, maybe just eat some ribs. You know, have some seconds, some fries. Fat Eli, so help me. Stop, okay? Not another peep out of you. And he's like, mm, peeps are delicious. Fat Eli, <laughs> no one wants to hear what you have to say. But if you're gonna cross this idea from Galatians over to our context and to the subject that we're talking about, to this idea of sadness or depression or mental health, I think you could, you could, um, you could cross it over and, and say it this way. What he's saying here is that the mental health of those in a community is the responsibility of that community. That's what people would have heard or experienced from this verse then. And I'm not saying that you you shouldn't have healthy personal boundaries. you should. I'm also, you know, I want to be honest, like you cannot fix other people, and trying to is going to drive you crazy. But you are designed to listen to and pray with and help and serve and sacrifice for and be inconvenienced on behalf of others in need. And some of those needs that exist around you are mental and emotional. And so maybe you're wondering like, okay, well, if we're supposed to share each other's burdens and we wanna be those kind of people, like how come so many people that are hurting, they don't seek help? And I, I think the reason for this I think there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think that, that many of them fit into these categories. I think that those who are suffering often stay stuck because they're too overwhelmed to act. And why are they too overwhelmed to act, to reach out, to ask for help? It's due to the depth of their sadness or their fear of stigma or their unwillingness to address their sin or the size and scope of the road to recovery. It could be just one of these things. It could be all of them. It could be a combination of them. And what do I mean by that? I wanna unpack this a little bit. What what do I mean by depth of sadness? That people are too overwhelmed by their depth of sadness to, to seek help. People who are seriously depressed, they sometimes just don't have the strength to seek help. And part of that is because depression actually biologically weakens your will. It also disables your ability to think logically. Depressed people like often make short-sighted decisions because their long-term cause and effect thinking isn't working. And I know you've probably seen this with somebody who's depressed and who is just like bottoming out and they're like, I'm gonna do this. And you're just like, that thought doesn't seem logical. And that's because it's not. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it, it may not, but it, it feels very true because all that matters is the feelings in the moment because the part of your brain that operates long-term isn't really working in this moment. And we're gonna get into this more in depth next week, but I would tell you like, this is why the right psychiatric medication can be enormously helpful for people. Because if you don't even have the strength to get out of bed or form a forward moving thought, how are you gonna build any of the healthy habits necessary to get and stay healthy? Sometimes this is the dismissive attitude that we have of like, well, you just need to form some healthy habits. So just get up and go do it. And they're just like, my arms don't work. I can't get out of bed. I I don't, tomorrow, I can't even imagine what that would be. Hell, I guess. You don't have the ability to do this. And what I would tell you is medication on its own doesn't work if you don't couple it with something else. Because medication doesn't remove your need to take action. It gives you just enough strength and focus to be able to take action and to be able to seize control of your story, to be able to move your life in the right direction. And so if you do it in and of itself, you're still stuck. And if you try and do the other things without it, sometimes you can't get the motivation to do it. Sometimes the depth of our sadness prevents us from being able to ask for help move forward or even admit what we're going through. And the second thing I think is the fear of stigma. Study after study shows that this is the number one reason people do not come out and admit and ask for help about mental health issues, including depression. They're afraid of being labeled and marginalized and made fun of and treated awkwardly or avoided altogether. They're afraid that people are gonna make all sorts of assumptions about them because they're not behaving in the expected way. What are you drunk, right? Why would people feel like they're gonna be stigmatized? Because history, like people with mental health issues have long been judged harshly, marginalized, discriminated against and experimented on almost as if they weren't even human. And although like the way that we treat people uh, that, that fit into these categories, like, although it's evolved quite a bit, it, it's, it's not really completely and totally outside of the realm of possibility that there won't be a cost to you admitting what's going on with you. And it's hard not to worry about what relationships and opportunities you're gonna lose from being real. And so the fear of stigma sometimes keeps us from getting help. The third reason is the unwillingness to address sin. And I, I know for some of you, this one like, is like, mm, I don't know. I think here's the issue with this. There are some people who mistakenly think that all depression is a a direct result of some sort of sin. I think there are other people that mistakenly imagine that no depression is ever a result of sin. And I think they're both wrong. Sometimes the deep sadness that we're experiencing inside of ourselves is because we don't want to acknowledge that something that we're wrapped up in is wrong and we need to humbly ask for help. And so we keep doing the thing that we know is wrong and wondering why we don't feel right. And it's because we're living incongruent with how we were made to operate. And we can feel, feel it on an emotional and a physical level. I think the fourth reason that people don't seek help is that they're overwhelmed by the size and scope of recovery because the reality of it is Learning to manage your mental health is a process. It takes time, effort, and energy, and that is hard for impatient Americans to accept. We hate this. We hate it when it's us, and we hate it when it's people around us. I'll tell you, one of the most common conversations I have with people, uh, you know, after a a sermon or a series or whatever, people be like, oh, man, I really love that thing that you said about, like, man, I gotta retrain my, my thoughts, and I, I got to take my thoughts captive. And, and wow, I, that was really powerful. And I feel like I need to do that because I have a really negative, destructive thought life. So how would I do that? Because I need to be better by Monday. So how can you just, how do you do that? And I'm like, okay, well, that's not, I'm not going to be able to do that for you, okay? Uh, that's not very realistic. Let's just break this down logically. Uh, you've been thinking one way for 42 years, I like, I don't know that I'm gonna be able to fix you in 15 minutes. And honestly, I can't fix you. That's something that you are gonna have to put in the work between you and God and the people that surround you to do. I can give you tools, but it's gonna be something that you're gonna have to work on for the rest of your life. Mental health is much like physical health, right? When you stop working on it, it atrophies, right? And some of us are like, whew, that's why some of my old pictures sometimes confuse my children because that is very true. This is an everyday process. It takes time and you're gonna need to involve others. And so let me ask you some questions. Let me give you some things to sort of think about, journal on, discuss as you go through the rest of your week. Who in your life, as you're brainstorming, who in your life could you safely express the full range of your emotions to? A lot of us, part of the problem is we lock it inside because we don't know where to go with it or who to talk to about it. This is one of the saddest things to me about the Hannah story, right? Right? Who does she have that's safe to just to talk about everything that's going on in her life with? Nobody. And I think this is the state of a lot of people who are just like, I have no idea. This is part of the reason why we encourage people to get involved in a group here at church, to get involved in, um, in, in a serving team, to put themselves around people that are safe to open up to and to express themselves to and explore what's really going on inside of them. Here's another question. Like, if you believe that your emotional health was essential, what might you need to do that you don't really want to? Because I would tell you that in some of the stuff we're gonna tackle in the weeks to come, I'm gonna give you some really practical things that people who are getting better are doing. And what you'll notice about them is I'm gonna say it and you're gonna be like, I don't feel like doing that. Of course you don't, you're depressed. But sometimes it is, it is, it is pushing ourselves to know that like, I'm not gonna feel like doing it until after I've been doing it. And that is a difficult reality to wake up to. But I wonder if you were weren't waiting on a feeling to get started, I wonder what you might like imperfectly stumble towards right now. And the third question I want you to wrestle with this week is, what if the goal wasn't effortless perfection? What if our culture is wrong? What if effortful imperfection in the right direction is the goal? Like what if it's not like looking like you're not even trying and you just are amazing and everything? What if that's really what if that's just this big lie that we've all bought into that is bottoming us out? What if the reality of it is, is that a healthy existence is actually putting a lot of effort into your life and sort of moving through your life imperfectly, getting a lot of stuff wrong. But it's not just sort of sitting down and just being like, I'm imperfect, you know? So I just, there's nothing I can do. But it's it's stumbling in the right direction and knowing that you're not gonna get every step correct. But the culmination of that forward movement is gonna lead you to where you wanna go to become the true person that you really were made to be. And I just wonder, like, what if we could change this conversation? What if we could shift the culture? Maybe not the whole culture, but maybe just the culture around us and the people that we know and love. When my kids were a bit younger, one of the things I noticed right away when they started you know, going to preschool and having playdates at the park and stuff is that the thing that other kids would do to hurt them is they would call them weird. You're so weird. And that, like, this, would, this would devastate my children. It was the worst word they knew. They hated it. And the reason they hated it because it was like, very obvious to everyone at the park that weird was bad. And yet, my wife and I, we didn't battle um, this, this, this idea or this experience by telling them that they're not weird because they are. You've met some of my kids. I mean, they are, they're weird, right? But it's not just them. You know why they're weird? Because everybody's weird. And instead, we told our kids, listen, own your weirdness and find ways to make it work for you. Own it. You can't avoid it. You're not supposed to be like everybody else. You're not supposed to think like everybody else and feel like everybody else and operate exactly like everybody else in all the same situations. Yeah, there's some things that we need to adjust in order to be able to work with and live with and care for people. But weird is just the state of things. And as they've grown, I've noticed that I've overheard them at times. Other kids will tell them like, oh man, So you call me weird and whatever, and my kids will, I've I've heard my kids a couple times just being like, but you are weird. You're your own kind of weird. What are you going to do with it? And I wonder if this is the way that we thought about it. I wonder if we just decided, regardless of what the rest of the world is going to do, that we were just like admitted to ourselves. Nobody is normal. You are your own kind of weird. So what are you going to do with it? What if instead of trying to be effortlessly perfect, you just embraced who you are and you began to try and move through life, stumbling forward toward Christ imperfectly? What if you decided it was okay to admit where you're at and to not have it all together and to own your weirdness and to feel your real feelings and to trust others with your story and to commit to the, the, the ongoing process of recovery and to adjust your style of living step by step to unlearn things that you grew up with maybe that don't work for you anymore. This is the beginning of healing, but it starts with deciding that we don't need to fit the mold of one certain unfeeling, never being a downer, always doing everything right sort of people because if you believe that is the expectation, you will become depressed because it's not possible and it's not your purpose. And this is what I wanna pray into your life today, that God would impart to you the understanding of who he made you to be, that God would give you a picture of your own kind of weird, that he would Help you to move forward, that he would identify for you people that you can be open and honest with everything that's going on you with, and that you can aim your weirdness as something that makes the world better, as opposed to being upset that you're not like everyone else. And that's what I'm gonna pray about for you. Would you bow your head across this building? God, I thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy. God, I thank you for the life that you have gifted us with. I thank you for the uniqueness that you have made us with. God, we are we are not normal people. Because there are no normal people. There's just people. And for a lot of us, um, we've experienced uh, like some different things that make it difficult for us to navigate what we would deem as normal life. Maybe we're in a season... Um, where so many of the expectations that have been placed on us have just become so overwhelming that we are just stuck. We're stuck between maybe who, how we see ourselves and maybe the expectations of how the world wants to see us or expects of us. And we're just trying to figure out like who you've made us to be and what that looks like, how to function. And God, we need you to give us your guidance, your spirit, your wisdom. I pray that we would be people who don't siphon off or shut down certain aspects of our feelings. God, I pray that we would be people that actually make it safe for others to come into our orbit and not need to perform, to not need to fake it, to not need to pretend like they are feeling and experiencing something they're not, but they can be exactly how they are and who they are. They can find a safe place to stumble toward you imperfectly. God, may we be these kinds of people. And as we aim our lives in that direction, may you do what only you can do with our existence. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.